Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for the privilege that I have and, and all of us have, Father, to be part of a fellowship as special as Oak Hill Bible Church. In your word, Father, you tell us that the day was coming and now is when we would worship in spirit and truth. And for many, Father, that's a mystery, something they've yet to even experience. But yet, Father, you've been gracious to show us the full view of that. That in the way we worship, Father, through the communion of the saints, fellowship, prayer, encouraging one another, stimulating one another to greater works in in faith, the proclamation of the word and the gospel itself, in all the many ways we try to do that, Father, you have shown fully what it means to follow in your footsteps through the Spirit's encouragement and direction. Thank you, Father, that we have at Oak Hill the privilege to be a part of something like that. But, Father, I pray that we would not leave it in our own hands and to ourselves. We would seek to deliver it outward and to the world, to wherever you may send us, whether close or far. And today, Father, we open your word because as as ambassadors and soldiers for Christ, we need to be trained, we need to be taught and prepared for the work you have. And the Bible, Father, your word is that means for dividing rightly and, and inspecting our lives so that we may conform to Christ. Let us be schooled today as only we can be by the spirit we praise you for the opportunity thanking you father and asking your work in this moment in jesus name amen genesis chapter 9 i thought maybe last week we would actually move out of 9 today and into 10 but (laughs) such is not the case today we're actually going to finish 9 but there is still enough to do there today i think you'll agree when we're done it was worth the time chapter 9 we left off right at verse 24 And let's reset here. Let's remember how we move through the chapter. We're at the very end of the flood story. We're about to transition into the next toldat. That's the Hebrew word for the next genealogy, the next family. But we have unfinished business here in the family of Noah before we can leave and go into the next toldat. Last thing we saw in this chapter was Noah, unfortunately, giving in to his flesh. He had left the flood. They had established a new life on earth. But in the process of beginning to farm again and grow things and eat, he became drunk on the wine made with grapes. He lay in his tent uncovered, exposed. We went through last week all of the reasons why that was so important and so shameful. And in the course of watching Noah engage in this behavior, we we came to the obvious conclusion. The man's not perfect. He's not sinless. He was called blameless back in chapter 6, but that's not sinless, though he was a great man of faith. And in this indiscretion, his son Ham comes upon his father, sees him, naked, glories in that, and in so doing magnifies his father's shame. And by celebrating his father's sin, rather than showing respect for his father and cover up his father's shame and give back his father his dignity, instead he glories, he celebrates in his father's sin, while his brothers, on the other hand, show mercy, they do the right thing, they do their best to help their father recover some dignity. And so next what we see in this chapter is Noah's response to how his children reacted. And going back into the discussion, I also want to remind you of something we started to see last week. How many parallels there was in this account to the story of Adam and woman in the garden, to their fall, to the way a a fruit caused an indiscretion which led to shame and an attempt to cover that shame. But in the end, the indiscretion was discovered by the father and it resulted in curses being pronounced against those who were involved. That pattern is repeating here. And we've reached the moment now where Noah, the father in this story, responds to what he learns concerning the mistakes that were made and the shame that was shared. 
And he responds with prophetic statements concerning the boys and the future of these boys' families, their respective family lines over the next centuries and, and millennia. Now, as we read these pronouncements, as we go back into the text this morning, remember, Noah would have understood, even in his day, the seriousness of what he was saying to these people. He understood that his boys would repopulate the earth. God already made that declaration. You will multiply and fill the earth again. So he knew that each son of his three were going to produce, over time, a multitude of people. He didn't need thousands of years to go by to figure that out. He knew that was coming. Which explains why Noah makes such sweeping pronouncements here. Why he speaks in the way he does. He understood exactly what he was doing. And I would argue that he was doing so. The impetus for doing so was the Spirit's influence. God directing Noah to speak these words. And therefore they became prophetic. Let's look at Noah's response. Let's begin in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So with that, we come to the end of the chapter, but suffice to say, there is quite a bit there in what Noah says and its meaning and its purpose for us today, so we're going to go through it deliberately, of course. Coming back to verse 24, we hear Noah wakes and learns of the prior evening's indiscretions. My English text here says he knew what his youngest son had done, but the Hebrew word there translated youngest in my version can be also translated younger. And I think that's actually the more accurate translation. If your Bible says younger, you have it right. Younger here because Ham is actually not the youngest. He's the middle child. But he was younger in the sense that he was not the oldest. Some of us, perhaps, based on our own backgrounds, may be able to identify a little bit with Noah at this moment. You know, perhaps we've had past decisions, past indiscretions, where we have that sinking feeling as we wake up in the morning and replay in our mind what happened the night before and piece together all that was said and done. I hope that doesn't include you, but I know it does me, unfortunately, going back particularly to years before I was a believer. In Noah's case, he probably woke up and he noticed, I'm not wearing my normal evening attire. In fact, I'm not wearing anything. And where did this cloak come from? It's not mine. Oh, wait a minute. This is Shem's or Japheth's. How did Shem's cloak get on my naked body? <gasps> All that wine. You know, it probably didn't require a whole lot of thought on his part to put two and two together, see it for what it was, understand it. Even if he didn't know all the details, he knew enough. And with that recognition, you can expect Noah was horrified. He was certainly embarrassed and ashamed. So perhaps he gets out of the tent. He approaches the boys to apologize or to ask for an explanation or for something. But in the course of that discussion, verse 24 tells us that Noah came to understand. The word for know there is yada in Hebrew, and it means to understand intimately, to know, to recognize. He came to understand that what his younger son had done was not something he should have done. That what Ham had done was disrespect his father in a time, in a moment, when his father was particularly vulnerable. 
Now, this is not to excuse Noah's own behavior, and I don't believe Noah was seeking an excuse. I think all Noah is doing is what a father is supposed to do when he sees his son having done something wrong. God will deal with Noah and his own sin. It's recorded in Scripture. That alone is probably uh, a burden that Noah has had to bear in heaven. But there is still the matter of Ham and Ham's own mistake. More than simply disrespect his father, Ham here had done something beyond that. He had shown a willingness to, to enjoy, perhaps you could even say to celebrate, the sin of his father, the sin, the sin of someone else. And in that behavior, he shamed both his dad and himself by that indiscretion. Ham's example here is a good one for us in the negative sense. It causes, I think, a question to be raised in our minds, or it should. The question is, do we ever do this? Do we ever glory in someone else's sin? Now, our first answer might be, of course not, Steve. But before you rush to that, before we all rush to that answer, I just want to ask a few questions and see how the answers to these questions play out in your own mind. When we learn of some embarrassing or shameful news concerning someone we know, for example, do we ask ourselves, gee, I wonder who I can share this with? Who would be interested in knowing this? Or if we're out with friends, let's say, in an evening, and one person begins exchange uh, engaging in mischief this is particularly true i noticed with teens of course young people you know somebody in the group's the class clown and decides to start acting out and and starts doing something a little mischievous are we the kind of person who would encourage them onward hoping to see what outlandish thing they're willing to do and how risky they're willing to be and just how far they're willing to go but of course we don't want to do it we just want to encourage them and watch and see what happens have you ever been that person Do we look the other way when a friend breaks the rules or even the law rather than correct them in a kindly way, reminding them of their Christian witness, assuming they're Christian? All of these patterns, and I'm not saying we all have done them all. Maybe some of us have done none of them to our credit. But to the extent we have a tendency to do any of those things, we're repeating the mistake of Ham because at the core of each of these, we are celebrating, glorifying, encouraging someone else's sin. I think of it as living vicariously through somebody. You know, we're Christians, so we don't want to do those sorts of things, but I wish I could sometimes, so I'd like to see someone else do it for me. That's a carnal response. I'm hoping none of us think that way on a regular basis. But I want you to at least be aware that those things cross the same line that Ham crossed in the Scripture. They take us from a position of glorifying in the right things and toying with, playing with the wrong things, even if from afar, so that we can gain some vicarious thrill out of it. And it's particularly bad, I think, when we're enjoying enjoying somebody else's sin from afar because we want to see them get their comeuppance. Paul prayed that the church would be different than that. In Philippians 1, he says this in verse 9, he says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless before or until the day of Christ. Paul's concern for the church was that we wouldn't be a ham, so to speak. We wouldn't be the one who glories in the wrong things, that that approves the wrong things, but rather we would be the kind of person who in love, based on knowledge and discernment, would approve excellent things. He mentions being sincere. I think that's something lost in the society at large today. No one's sincere anymore. We're snarky, we're sarcastic, we're joking. We don't actually take time to be sincere very often anymore. It seems too 
dour, too boring. But the Christian should be sincere, not morbid, not depressed and sad, just sincere. What do we approve and what do we not approve? What do we feel should be and what do we know shouldn't be? And how do we stimulate people around us in the right way? So that Paul says we would be blameless in the day of our judgment before Christ. You know what he's implying? Guilt by association. We're not blameless if by our behavior we encourage others into sin. That's Ham's problem. Ham didn't make his dad naked, but he became guilty because he approved the wrong thing. And in in so doing, he magnified Noah's shame. Now, Noah doesn't approve of Ham's behavior, and so he responds with a curse. Look at the text. The first thing you noticed, I assume, was that the curse is directed not against Ham, but who? Canaan. Canaan. Now, since the beginning of this chapter, we've noticed that any mention of Ham in this chapter always included the qualifying phrase, the father of Canaan. We may have wondered at the beginning, why does this reference to the father of Canaan keep getting mentioned? Well, here we see now why Moses has been giving us that added detail, because he wants us to make this connection between Ham and his son Canaan, so that when we get to this moment, the curse, we'll understand why the curse falls on Canaan. And the reason why goes back to chapter 3. Do you remember in chapter 3 when we looked at God pronouncing curses as a result of the fall? We talked a little about the meaning of the word curse, the biblical meaning. We have other meanings for it today, right? If someone says they curse today, we, we think of the word differently. But in the day it was spoken here, in the biblical sense, the word curse means a pronouncement of eternal damnation. And when it comes from God, as is the case here through the power of the Spirit... It is a permanent, irrevocable verdict. When God pronounces curse, he is damning something forever. And there's no recovery from that. Now, you can do this study on your own if you ever have an interest, but go through and look at the word curse as it's used, and you'll notice this pattern. It's not used lightly. It's never recoverable. It's reserved only for those who, in their state of unbelief, in their rebellion and sin, will end up in an eternity of hell. That's what the word means. When it's applied to a non-living object like the earth, it references the destruction of the same. So the earth is under a curse. That means the physical earth we live on today cannot be forever. It must eventually come to an end because of the curse. So God here pronounces a curse, or let's just call it what it is. He pronounces eternal damnation upon Canaan. Now, why not on Ham? Well, Ham, if you remember, is one of the eight who came on the ark. He's one of the original eight, the family of eight that entered into the ark. Peter testifies in his letter, his second letter and his first, that all eight of those who went on the ark were righteous by faith. In fact, getting on the ark was that test of faith in their case. It was the proof of their faith that they were willing to enter the ark. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Peter says this. He says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, And committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And skip to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. What Peter makes comparison to are those God knows how to rescue from those God knows how to hold accountable. 
And as he gets to his summation point, he says, to those that he knows how to rescue, the godly, God will do so. And to those who are unrighteous, he will ensure they receive eternal punishment. By that reference, we come to the conclusion that in Noah's example, he was making the comparison between the unrighteous ancient world that came under judgment through the flood versus the eight, Noah and the other seven, who entered into the ark. So if Ham is a man saved by God's grace, and the entrance onto the ark was the proof of that, the evidence of his faith, then God cannot cast a curse or pronounce a curse against Ham. He can't do it. For even when we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, we're told. There is no way God can go and curse a man who by God's own grace has been freed from the penalty of that sin to be accomplished later through the blood of Christ on the cross. Thank God, by the way, that that is the God we serve. Thank God that our sin doesn't bring us back to a place of jeopardy once having been saved. For if it were simply the case that our own sin would bring us back into a state of jeopardy, who could be saved? No, Ham here is a man saved by grace. Testimony of Scripture says he was righteous in the same way that all men are. He was one of the eight on the, on the ark. So this is the exact same situation God faced with Adam and woman in the garden. In the garden, he had two people who had gone directly against his will and sinned. And God's going to respond to that sin. He's going to pronounce a judgment for sin. He is a holy and just God. He cannot deny his nature. And as a just God, he must merit out justice. But what do you do against the only two human beings on earth if you intend to grow a world of people? <laughs> you can't curse them. So he never does. If you remember chapter 3, does God curse woman? No. Does he curse Adam? No. When it came to Adam, the man who we have scripture saying is the source of sin in the world, the one who brought sin into the world, when it came to Adam, God did not pronounce a curse against Adam. Instead, he pronounces a curse against the ground. Do you remember that? The ground. Because the ground was the source for Adam's physical body. And so God is indirectly cursing Adam. Not cursing his soul, not bringing him to an eternal damnation, but bringing his body, his physical body, which is a part of the earth, for that's where it came from. Bringing his body to a physical end. That is the basis for human death. That's why all bodies will die, because they're under this curse on the earth. Similarly, God here chooses to pronounce a curse through Noah upon Ham, but indirectly upon Ham. In this case, it lands on one of Ham's sons, Canaan. Now, remember, being a believer here does not assure us of being perfect. I mean, Noah is a clear proof of that. A believer can and will sin. And a believer will also find their life taking terrible turns from time to time. Our, our regular prayer opportunities here on every Sunday are a great example of the fact that believers suffer in many ways all the time. Saving faith, folks, is not an insurance policy against the horrors of a sinful world. I wish it were. Look at the Hall of Faith, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11. The first three names listed in the Hall of Faith are Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Think about those three men, starting, for example, with Noah. Noah dies of old age. But not before he endures a traumatic episode in the case of the flood. And then, of course, this embarrassing sinful moment in chapter 9. And then there's Enoch. Enoch is preserved, it would seem, from just about everything, including death itself. He's translated. He's raptured. 
And then there's Abel. Abel's murdered at a young age. The Hall of Faith. Three men, all of them called out as men of faith, and yet each of them experiences wildly different lives, wildly different outcomes. If these men who are listed in the Hall of Faith can experience things like murder and mayhem and sin, then how are we to look at our own lives and bemoan whatever might happen? Or fault God or say that, for example, we didn't deserve it. After all, we're your child. We're a man, a woman of faith. Why don't we have a perfect, easy life? Isn't that what we're supposed to get? Hey, if it didn't happen to the people in the Hall of Faith, I don't think we have much claim to expect that. And similarly, Ham, a man of faith, yet a man who made a mistake. Noah, a man of faith, but a man who made a mistake. They're going to have rough experiences in life. So now we understand why Noah doesn't directly curse his own son, for that man can't be cursed, he's a man of faith. But it doesn't answer the other half of the question, does it? Why did he pick on Canaan? Well, the answer is simple, but I'll acknowledge up front, it may not be satisfying, at least for some of us, at least not at first. God is intent on bringing consequences for this sin. And this consequence will come out of Noah's pronouncement, out of Noah's mouth. Because remember, Noah is government right now. We looked earlier in this chapter at how the time after the flood begins a new period for God's plan on earth, a new outworking of his grace. And we think of this new time as it's designated as the time of government. Human government is established through Noah. And until there is more men and women on earth, Noah basically is president, prime minister, and king. He's the, he's the government. So now God has said, when men sin, they'll be held accountable for their sin by government. And Noah represents government. So Noah has to make this pronouncement. But he can't curse Ham. So it flows to the next generation. And at that point, it doesn't really matter where it lands. I mean, when you get right down to it, it does not matter to God where it lands. God is sovereign over the life of each and every person. And he can determine how each life will serve his purposes however he wishes. That's what it means to be God. In God's wisdom and providence, he determined that Canaan was the proper recipient for the wrath that comes as a result of Ham's sin. We may look at it and say, well, there's got to be some reason. God's not capricious. And you're right. There is a reason why it was Canaan and not one of the other brothers. You have Ham's oldest son, for example, Cush. You have second son, a third son. Canaan is actually the fourth son under Ham. And many commentators have looked at that and have come up with some amazingly inventive ways to create culpability because they struggle with the concept that God could assign a punishment to someone who had literally nothing to do with the situation. But that's exactly what God did. And he picked Canaan because Canaan was fourth. Remember when God responded to Adam's sin in the garden? He cursed the ground. He communicated that through Adam's sin, God would bring judgment But he didn't want to do it in a way that ultimately harmed his greater purpose. So God was turning something evil to good when he cursed the ground. Remember, we're blessed by the fact that God is going to replace the ground. And we're blessed by the fact that as a result of that, we're going to see a new physical body. Because who wants to live with a physical body that has sin in it forever? You see how God turned what was a sin and the resulting curse into something good for all mankind. He does that again here. By cursing Canaan, he's doing something good for mankind. The number four in Scripture is a number associated with the earth. We see four compass directions. There are four seasons. There are four winds, 
we're told in Scripture. There are four corners of the earth, Scripture often says. Wherever you see the number four in Scripture, quite often it is used to denote earth. So here, God is doing the same thing he did in the garden, where he cursed the earth instead of Adam. Now he curses the fourth son, the earth, as represented by four, instead of Ham. Now, Canaan was a sinful man. I guarantee you he was a sinful man because he was born of Adam. He was as sinful from the day he took his first breath as every other human being who's ever lived has been sinful from the day they took their first breath, save Christ. And what does our sin require? The wages of sin are death. What prevents us from going into hell? God's grace through the gospel. When God says to Canaan, you're cursed, does he make Canaan sinful? Did he produce the culpability that resulted in Cain's damnation? No. That already existed. All God said was that for Canaan, there'd be no rescue. For Canaan, there'd be no mercy, there'd be no gospel. And as Paul says in Romans 9, he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And he will harden whom he will harden. That's what it means to be God. Who are we, the clay, to look at the potter and tell him he can do anything other than what he wants with the clay? So it is not that God made Canaan something other than who he was. God left him in his sin. And in that sense, it doesn't matter which child he picked. He picked the one that meant the most for his own glory. The one that communicated God's purpose was at work. And furthermore, it will have a positive impact for those God has called according to his purpose. The family that descends from Canaan will ultimately become poster children for the depravity of human beings in the land that becomes Israel. These are sexually depraved people, according to Scripture. They are idolaters. They have extreme practices. And when God's chosen people are led into the land by Joshua, somebody is going to be there. Somebody is going to be already in the land. That's a given. And those are people that God is going to displace and wipe out to make room for his promised people. And through this curse against Canaan, God ensures that the family that will be in the land and deposed by Israel will be people who, by God's own pronouncement, are deserving of what will happen as Joshua enters the land. The fulfillment of the curse, in other words, happens under Joshua's leadership and makes room for the nation of Israel in their land. God ties both of those ends together. God's wisdom in this plan, though, is evident. It ensures that the people deposed by the arrival of Israel are people properly destined for this outcome. And through it, he communicates a message of how God himself will determine the outcome of people's lives, though he will protect those he has called into faith. That is what he says to us every day. God turns all things to good, not for the world, but for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, some have speculated that this curse is the source for slavery of Africans. Have you ever heard that theory? The curse on Canaan is responsible for the continent of Africa being enslaved over the centuries by Europeans. The reason they've come to that conclusion is Ham's descendants are going to populate Africa. That's where Ham's descendants go after they move out following the flood. And, of course, we know the history of the enslavement of Africans by Europeans over the centuries. So is that true? Is that a good theory? Well, even a casual reading of Genesis shows us the flaw in that. Ham wasn't cursed. It was Canaan, not Ham. Ham goes to Africa. Canaan doesn't. Canaan goes into what we consider today to be the Middle East, Israel, Palestine, and so on. So even if that were true, and it's not, they got the names wrong. It's not that the African continent was caught up in the curse. The African continent had nothing to do with Canaan. No, that's a false 
teaching, and largely it was drummed up in an attempt to defend the practice of slavery. So we've covered Canaan. We've covered the the curse God pronounced as a result of Ham's sin. We've shown that Canaan was the target because it communicated the message that God was indirectly cursing Ham in the same way that he did in the garden, choosing the the ground, number four, rather than the, the one who committed the sin, for they were already saved by grace. But then he did it so that he could ultimately open opportunity for God's people to have the land that would be theirs, deposing a people group that were already designated for that destruction. And then he turns to the other brothers. Now, here you have the two brothers who work to protect Noah's dignity, Shem and Japheth. So Noah now pronounces blessing on them. Remember last week I said this provides a comparison to the way God treated woman in the garden. Woman never gets cursed. And though commonly we're taught that the woman was given all these negatives, these punishments, when we looked at them in chapter 3, we came to understand they were all blessings. They were all grace. For the woman was the one who tried to defend God's honor and glory. The woman was the one in the garden who at least made an effort to speak God's word, though she got it wrong. Adam, on the other hand, was the one who sinned with his eyes open. Here you have two boys who were caught up in the moment by their brothers choosing to share the sin of the father with them. They were inevitably caught up in it and made to share in it themselves, but it wasn't by their own willingness. And they did their best to mitigate and cover dad's shame. So they received blessings in the same way that woman did in the garden. For Shem, Noah blesses Shem, not directly, but he blesses the God of Shem. You notice? He pronounces a blessing on the God of Shem. For Shem, though, the meaning of this would have been very clear. Shem will be the line of the seed. That's the blessing. Remember the line of the seed? This is the promise in Genesis 3 where God says that the woman would give birth to a seed who would eventually crush Satan, would eventually bring about the redemption of all men, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. But ever since that moment, we've been watching who gets the promise of all the children that come out from Adam and woman and all their children and all their children. Who is getting the promise? Which line within the family tree carries the promise? And we watched it move down the line. And now it eventually rested with Noah. From Noah, you have three sons. Who's going to get the line? Who's going to be the one to carry on the promise that eventually results in the Messiah's birth? Well, we find out here it's Shem. Shem will be the one who has the line of the seed, the God of Shem. The promise for the Messiah will come through him. Now, from Shem, just speaking now about anthropology, from Shem we get two notable lines of people in the world today who descend from Shem. First, we get the people of the promised land, the Jewish people that come from Shem. Secondly, we get the Arab peoples. And they, as you know, play the foils for Israel throughout history. We'll learn more about the origins of these two people groups in later chapters. But for now, you, you can wrap them up by saying they're both Semites. You know, to be anti-Semitic is not just to be against Judaism. Technically speaking, it means to also be anti-Arab, if, if you were to be that way. So Semites come from Shem, by definition. But only the Israelites will carry the promised seed out of Shem's line. Noah also repeats, as you notice, that Canaan will be a servant to Shem. That becomes apparent when you see how, as the nation comes into the land under Joshua, the Canaanites become slaves subjugated to the nation of Israel and remain so in one form or another forever until they finally become slaves of Rome in 147 B.C., later to be destroyed by the Romans and ceasing to exist. Then Noah turns to Japheth. 
he just says that Japheth and his families will be enlarged. Now, he doesn't mean they're going to become overweight. He's talking here about the number of them and their wealth. They will become notable or sizable in population and in wealth. The people who come from Japheth eventually settle Europe, Asia, and then, of course, by extension, North America, and ultimately South America. So you have territories representing the vast majority of the world's population all coming from one guy, from Japheth. And if you notice those areas, Asia, Europe, North and South America, that also represents the vast majority of the world's resources and wealth. That's the fulfillment of this promise. Japheth's family will be the dominant family on earth in population and in wealth. The phrase there, though, where it finishes saying his family would dwell in the tents of Shem, that's an important addition. The word dwell there conveys a certain meaning in the Hebrew. It's shakan in, in Hebrew. It literally means to abide in, to abide in. It's very similar to shakan in Hebrew, which means to be neighbors with. And I think there's a play on words intended there. There's a sense of shared communal benefit, but the tents belong to Shem. Shem's not in Japheth's tents. Japheth is in Shem's tents. And the sense there is that Japheth will have the wealth and the numbers, but they will bring that to Shem's home to the benefit of Shem. And then there will be a reciprocal benefit for having come to dwell with Shem. Now, the fulfillment of this can only be understood spiritually. Shem will produce the line of the Messiah through Israel, right? Japheth is going to produce Gentiles. The bulk of the Gentiles who live on the earth. And the Gentiles will receive a blessing by dwelling spiritually in Israel. And they will bring with them the wealth of the world to Israel's benefit. You see it playing out even today. It's been there all along, but you can see it today very easily. Look at the world in relationship to Israel and the West. And I'm not proclaiming, by the way, that the nation of Israel politically is the fulfillment of Israel spiritually. I'm just saying that even on a, on a simple level like that, you can see the relationship. The Western powers, particularly the United States, have become a, an important ally for a very vulnerable country in the form of the political Israel. And our wealth and power is dwelling with them and making them secure to some extent. And then spiritually, all the Gentiles that have come to faith are dwelling in the promises given to Israel. We, we are grafted in, Paul says, into that tree, that promise, that root. When you look back on these three brothers as we conclude today, I want you to notice something very interesting here. They each serve as a representative of the three major divisions of humanity. Sometimes you've heard me say there's only two kinds of people in the world, believers and unbelievers, and any other way of dividing them really doesn't make any difference. That's mostly true. But this text actually gives us three divisions to make it a little bit more accurate. For example, Ham. Ham here, and by association his son Canaan, who do you think they represent? They picture the fate of unbelievers. The fate of all unbelievers are pictured by Canaan. These are the ones who glory in sin. Just like Ham did when he saw his father naked. These are the ones who celebrate the flesh. These are the ones in the world who will go to destruction paying the penalty for their sin. And, but for the grace of the Father, there we would go to. These are the unbelievers. Now, Shem, on the other hand, he represents the Jews. But the seed line, specifically, God's chosen people, the people who bring salvation to the world, the believing remnant. 
And then finally, Japheth. Japheth represents the Gentile believer. Those who own the world, but will give it up for the hope of Israel. The person who comes into the family of God by faith and is grafted into the promises of Israel. We, we are part of this by association. We live in the tents of Shem, so to speak. And one day we will dwell, literally, in the promised kingdom that was given or will be given to Israel. We will be, by association, able to enter into this kingdom that is coming in Christ's rule on earth will bring it about. So you have Ham, Shem, and Japheth, three men who populate the entire world, and from them also representatives of the three ways in which the world knows the Lord. Not at all, or as a chosen member of Israel, or as a Gentile who is grafted in by faith. And to end this chapter, Moses tells us of the end of Noah's story. Verses 28 and 29, I've already read, but... Look at them again for a moment. Noah lived, we're told, 350 years after the flood so that all his days were 950 years and he died. As we finish the chapter, I just want us to reflect back on Noah for a moment. His lifespan here is 950 years. We've already studied lifespans. We know these are literal numbers. But 350 of these years occurred after the flood. Now, think about for a moment what that means. If you remember when we studied the lifespans back in chapter 5, I handed out that sheet that had all the lifespans of the patriarchs going all the way to Jacob and how they overlapped. If you still have that in your Bible, that would be something worth reflecting on in in this moment. Noah lives long enough after the flood to see the world repopulated. By the time he dies, the world is filled again from as far as Europe to East Asia and into Africa with his descendants. And Noah's son, Shem, another one who was on the boat who saw the flood firsthand, who knew the world before the flood, Shem, he lives until Jacob is a hundred years old. Clearly, between Noah and Shem, there was plenty of opportunity for ancient men to hear the story of the flood firsthand from an eyewitness account and record the details accurately. This is one of the many ways we can look at Scripture, and in particular some of these early chapters of Genesis, with the confidence that what we're reading here can be trusted, not least of all because it's God's Word, but, but in a human sense, in the practical sense, how could these data have been available to men? It's not hard to understand when you see men living so long and overlapping one another in so many ways. When the news of, of Noah's death spread around the world, it must have been an important day for the world. Noah had been born before Adam died. And now Noah was gone. It's been 2,000 years since the start of mankind, since the start of the garden. 2,000 years. And until this moment, humankind could connect human history back to the beginning through the lives of just two people. You had one guy living who had been alive when the first guy was living. For 2,000 years, we could have connected all of human history through just two people. And now Noah has died. And in future generations, men will see their lifespans drop off even more dramatically. And as a result, they're going to lose that direct testimonial connection from one man to another. It's going to be a little harder to trace the history of men. It's going to be a little less accessible. You go sit on grandpa's lap and hear the stories about great-grandpa and great-great-grandma maybe and That became the connection for you to the family. And then grandpa dies, and so do the stories. But now we're talking about the world's stories. So along the way, in the course of those 350 years that Noah lives after the flood, languages are going to increase. 
because of the Tower of Babel. Distances are going to grow because men move out over the whole globe. Continents have been spread apart by the flood, so now there's water separating men. They don't get back to talk to one another as easily as they used to. And what men are going to begin to do now, as we go into chapters 10 and onward, is they're going to create stories to fill the gaps in their history. They're going to create myths. They're going to create legends. They're going to make things up, because that's what people do when they want a history and they don't have it. It's not a coincidence that most ancient cultures in the world have a flood story of some kind, though the the details all differ. Because the original one, as we're told in Scripture, is the true one, and everybody else has got a version of it. Because they made up stories to fill the gaps. So myths are going to develop, idols are going to increase, and it is the evidence of God's mercy that he was willing to record the real story, the truth, through Moses at a later day, so that we would not lose this truth so that it would be preserved, so that even today, 6,000 years or so after the time of the garden, we're still able to understand the account of those details. More than just what happened, we understand the whys and the hows, the source of man's sin, the consequences of living apart from God, and the promised solution, the seed, the Lord. Father, thank you, Father, for the grace that you've shown us through the preservation of your word, through an opportunity to understand and know these truths. Let us reflect, Father, on the three men that came out of Noah's line and how they represent the world around us today. We know by faith, Father, we have come to be a part of the family of God. We have started in the line of Japheth for most of us, perhaps Shem in a few cases. By faith, we've been brought into the family of God again. I pray that none of us, Father, would be in the line of of Ham, of the one who represents unbelief and glories and sin. And let us not keep these truths to ourselves, just as you didn't keep them from us, just as the world may have created myth to fill in gaps, you saw fit to bring us the truth so that we would not need myth, but could rely entirely on what you give us in your word. And so, Father, let us be the source for someone else to have that same grace and that same mercy. Let us be the, the oracle of God. And I ask, Father, that this small church would continue to do your will, both in Austin and elsewhere. Let us continue to grow in strength and in righteousness and in number, if that be your will. Let us serve a community, both here and abroad. Prepare us, Father, for, your Lord, for our Lord's return. Prepare us, Father, for our day of judgment. Let us be counted approved in that day. And bring us back next week. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. With that, you're